Well, hello and welcome to episode 19 of Yes Up Yes. I'm Anthony Edmondson, also known as Voiceover Tony on all them social medias and that. And I am with my very good friend... Paul Anthony Jones. Mr. Haggard Hawks. Mm. Yeah, we, only, we sometimes say this at the intro just because otherwise we never ever explain who we are. Exactly. It's We're very inconsistent. Sometimes we'll explain who we are and what yeah. the game is. Other times we'll just kind of launch into things. Yeah, we, we're, we're doing this more for, for ourselves than anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told. That all these professional podcast types, they, they like introduce themselves and mm. they give links to stuff. And say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to do this now. And I, I, <laughs> yeah. I don't think we ever do that. We never do that, no. I turn up at your house... I have a cup of coffee, we do this, and then I go home. But <laughs> really, you've really, you really destroyed the magic for our 11 subscribers out there. They... That number gets bigger every time you make that joke. <laughs> That's got to be positive. It, it changes every time, to be honest. Yeah, true. So are you are you pumped up for today's episode, Paul? I, I kind of, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've got two facts that I'm really happy with. And then the third one, I, I was reading it through before I came across it. And it's just, mm. I, I don't think it's very good. And, you know, I'm, I'm setting my myself up for a there you fall, go everyone yeah. turn off now yeah if you turn, don't... <laughs> turn off at about the sort of 48 minute mark i on the other hand have some spectacular facts See, this is the thing, you, you, you you do weeks of research for yours mm. I, I literally sit in starbucks for like half an hour before i get here and that's that's my research done well i say spectacular i mean i looking over them now i don't know if i would call them spectacular but oh dear maybe, maybe interesting <laughs> that's the sound of everybody switching off now <laughs> It's episode 19, the least listened to episode. <laughs> Maybe we'll just not post this one. It'll be the lost episode. Yeah, it'll, it'll go straight from 18 to 20. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if we keep it a mystery, then we build it up and then eventually post it. That's the plan. Yeah. But anyway, are you ready for me to just kind of launch into the Okay, today? okay. So I wanted to talk about Glasgow today, Paul. Okay. I thought you were going to say gladiators there for a second, because <laughs> no. you, you love your Roman history. I do. <laughs> are you going to shoehorn the Romans into Glasgow? <laughs> you know. Yeah. No, I'm not. Oh, all right. Okay. Right. Glasgow. I was just there not so long ago. Oh, it, I was speaking at the book festival because I'm such a famous author these oh, days. Oh, I, I, I heard you uh, won a prize at that book festival, Paul. <laughs> Here we go. What, what prize did that win? <laughs> the prize for most returned book. <laughs> By, an, by a single author, I think that was, wasn't it? Yeah. Or was it most pulped book? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> See, the, oh, the my... listeners, are, this is what I have to put up with all the time. It's, it's not as if you don't insult me every chance. No, that is either. true. Yeah. But I'm feeling a lot more confident now. That now, tirade... now all my books have been pulped. <laughs> <laughs> now that that tirade of abuse has knocked your confidence. Yeah. Well, right, yeah. Okay. So you're talking about Glasgow. Does it matter yes. that I was there? No, it oh, doesn't. Right. Okay. Um, actually, I want to talk about Glasgow because I was looking at some of the podcast stats and we've got our most listeners are in Glasgow, our highest number. Oh, really? So Yeah. So I thought, oh, um... well, they didn't turn up to see my talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. There was a lovely crowd there. <laughs> I can't think of any more jokes there. But did you know uh, Glasgow is twinned with Havana in Cuba? Ah, right. No, I didn't know that. I know that there are some very odd twin cities. Mm. Ooh, that, speaking um, of... Yeah. Oh, is this the route you're going down? Okay. What are the routes? Because you okay. know what my facts are like. I kind of jump all oh, over the Oh, by the end of this, we'll be talking about ostriches or something. <laughs> we'll, we're going to get back to Glasgow. Right. But, but first, <laughs> we're going to talk about Neptune. <laughs> <laughs> no, come on. What are we, where are we going? Um, twin cities. I want to talk right. about Newcastle, where we live. Oh, right. Um, okay. Newcastle is twinned with Newcastle, Australia. 
which oh, is right, okay. very unimaginative, I think. It's, that happens quite often, though, that places uh, team up that have the same names, I think. But here's a bonus fact. Did you know Newcastle, Australia is the world's largest coal exporter, which Newcastle, England used to be way back in the day. Oh. It's like a beautiful symmetry. That's interesting for the three people who are <laughs> interested in coal exports. <laughs> I thought there'd be more of a reaction to that. Uh, another fact: There's is, literally nobody listening to this anymore. <laughs> but this might bring them back. Um, okay. Newcastle, Australia once gained a reputation as a hellhole, as it was a place where the most dangerous convicts were sent to dig in the coal mines. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Now, see, see, there yeah, you yeah, you're going to be back around with sort of up a bit. Yeah. You know what the worst thing about Newcastle, Australia? They don't even have a castle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I feel like I'm losing you, Paul. I'm losing you. I'm going back to Glasgow. Uh, yeah, now. okay, right, okay. Oh, so we're not, the fact's not about Newcastle. No, no, I said we're talking oh, about Glasgow. All right. <laughs> I, I'm so bamboozled already. I have no idea what's this, happening. This is entirely my tactic to throw right. you off okay. constantly. So, some facts about Glasgow before I get into my main yes or BS fact. Right. It's Scotland's largest city. Mm-hmm. Very well known fact, bigger than Edinburgh. Glasgow hosted the first ever international football match. Do you know between which teams? Oh. That's a good question. It was in 1872. 1872. Oh, it wasn't Scotland and England, was it? It was. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking it would be something really weird, like Liechtenstein and in Andorra. Or something. Yeah, but yeah, T- technically Scotland and England is yeah. Different so the, the rivalry yeah. goes well. It's not just a football. That's rivalry. not really international football, though, is it? <laughs> really? we're, we're both part of the UK. Well, Glasgow claims it's international. I suppose technically it is because we play on different sides in like the World Cup and stuff. Yeah, you yeah. see, there you go. Yeah, uh, the score was nil nil anyway. So <sighs> this annoys me about football. It could be going on for like two hours, and mm. after that, it's completely feasible for nothing of any consequence to have happened. Like you know, get a good sport. That's... It's all about the the excitement, the skill, and and all oh, that. Hey, honestly, anyway. <laughs> right, so that's. Ball's tangent. <laughs> Some more facts about Glasgow. Um, the name Glas, the name Glasmo, <laughs> is the name you've given to your new robot. <laughs> the name Glasgow uh, derives from a Gaelic phrase meaning green valley. Ah, oh, right. Okay. Glasgow. Um, there are also a disproportionate number of uh, inventors and scientists have come from Glasgow. Scotland in general, actually. There's dozens of names mm. of uh, scientists, uh, engineers, inventors, especially during the Victorian era. Yeah. Also, do you know the remains of St. Valentine are in Glasgow? No, I didn't. City of love. Oh, right. But now we're getting to my fact. Right. Because Glasgow also has the oldest surviving music hall. Okay. Uh, it's called the Panopticon. Right. Have you ever heard of that before? I don't know how, I don't know how much you know about it. The Panopticon. Hall. Yeah. Um, I know that word and mm. I think... I think I might. I'm getting my etymology head on, yeah, mm. because I think originally that was the sort of proposed name of a type of prison, mm. where because it means a panopticon means sort of viewable from all sides. You see, I d- had no idea what that meant, so I thought I'd, I'd give you a shout on that one. And it, I think it was someone like Jeremy Bentham or someone came up with this idea of like a prison that would have a sort of central tower full of prisoners, and mm. the guards would be kind of around it, like Magneto's prison in the X Men. <laughs> If you need a popular culture reference to go on, yes. No, you've seen the X-Men. I have, yeah. Right, so we're at the Panopticon. Right. It was built in 1857. And the fact I want to talk about is someone who performed here and the kind of adventure he had after his performance. Okay. So from this point on, this could be yes or BS. Okay, right. Have you ever heard of a Colonel Francis Onslow Barrington Foote? (laughs) 
No. He was a colonel in the Royal Artillery and also a famous British opera singer. Oh, right. So when he wasn't off fighting whatever wars he was doing in the Victorian era,、uh-huh. he would come back to the UK and perform operas. Right. His career started off as a musician in the army. Right. So that kind of pushed him on to become an opera singer. Right. Okay. Oh, wow. And、um, he came to the Panopticon in 1883, and it was here after his performance that something quite exciting happened to him.、Mm-hmm. Now he. Was traveling back from Glasgow to Edinburgh to do another performance, but he didn't want to take the train because he felt that steam engines were bad for the lungs. He was、oh, very、right. anti-technology. He decided to take a stagecoach back from Glasgow to Edinburgh. Okay, and it was here. Something ex- exciting happened to him. <laughs> I have literally no idea where you're going with because this. Because he was known as quite a wealthy man.、Mm-hmm. Um, some local ruffian types、mm-hmm. thought he would be a perfect target to rob. Right. Because ha- who travels by stagecoach these days? They thought. Yeah. He's going to be a very slow-moving target. We just wait on the road. We grab him. Right. Get all of his jewels and wealth and whatever, and his payment from what he was paid in Glasgow for、okay. his opera performance. So it's a sort of stand and deliver <clears throat> kind of thing. Exactly. But, but not quite、oh, right, stand、okay. and deliver. Because they knew he had quite an ego on him, so instead of just robbing him at gunpoint or whatever, they decided to stop the carriage and say, "Oh, Mr. Barrington Foot, we've heard you're an amazing opera singer. Would you mind stepping out and just giving us an impromptu performance out here?" All、oh, right, okay. So out he steps from the carriage. He went the... along with this. Yeah, he went, he he had a massive ego. So he thought, "Oh, my adoring fans,、oh, come、right. to see、okay. me on the road." Okay. They said, "Oh, we heard you in Glasgow. Wonderful performance. Could we please, please hear you again?" Right.、So、he steps out, starts to perform opera. Whereas, meanwhile, this criminal's accomplice snuck round the back of the stagecoach, took the lockbox full of valuables,、mm-hmm. um, took the payment he'd taken from his performance in Glasgow, and、mm-hmm. basically robbed him blind. Right. After his performance, he, nobody checked the back. Right. So Barrington Foot got back in the cab, and off they went down the road, completely unawares. They'd been robbed blind. Right. And that. Is my facts okay?、Um, that's a good story,、mm. right? So, is there any particular association, like why he was in Glasgow? Was he just sort of?、Uh, he would do tours of the UK generally, right?、And、because he was quite a good opera singer, he would just the big. He went to all the big major cities, right? Okay,、um, and so gla- this Panopticon in Glasgow was was yes. Was it kind of like a variety thing? So he wasn't doing sort of two hours. He was just one of the.、Hours. Oh no! It was it was a full. Oh, it was a concept、opera. of him. Yes, he actually he sang the role of Hallo the Ship in Charles Stanford's The Canterbury Pilgrims opera. Right. Okay. So I've, I've never heard of this before. I don't think anyone apart from the people who <laughs> listened to it at、you've、the time ne- have heard of it. You've never heard of the role Hallo the sh- Hallo the Ship.、Uh, okay. Right. So he was part of an opera. <laughs> then he decided. Now the thing about. Opera singers, yeah, th- they are very protective of their voices,、mm. and I suppose if sort of train technology was relatively new still at that time, r- yeah, well, I say, I say relatively, it's going to be. I、decades. think the eighteen twenties, the first trains came in. Yeah,、so、it was. There'd been about sixty, seventy years of trains by now. So, but it's still, still going to be very kind of still steam powered, still coal powered. Yeah. So he's maybe thinking, you know, I don't want all this coal dust、mm. in my lungs. So、I think being、plausible. being in the Royal Artillery as well, so he was out commanding cannon fire, basically. Oh right, okay. So as far away he could get from smoke as possible. That was his right,、goal. right, okay. That makes sense.、Um, Stagecoach, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I、mm. guess there wouldn't be very many alternatives unless he wanted to walk. <laughs>、um, okay, and so the thing that's sticking in my head is that. 
it's a very clever plan but it's this thing of like if you stopped a celebrity in the street you're walking around london and you see like i don't know i, I don't really listen to to the tunes these days but say so you walk past mariah carey and you're just like oh i'm a huge fan of yours sing me a song she'd probably tell you where to you, go you gotta think of the context though he's on a on a road that there'll barely be anybody on this road at all right that most people will be taking the train at this point uh, oh, so so I suppose... be, it's all—it's really that's why they decided to rob him because it was so isolated. Right, nobody was taking the coach then. Ah, uh, right. And I suppose if it's sort of you do suddenly bump into someone in the middle of mm. nowhere and they know who you are, exactly. If, if you're the right kind of egocentric mm. person, you're going to think that that's a great compliment. Exactly. Okay, and then it gives an impromptu concert while he's robbed yes. this makes sense because i have loads and loads of dictionaries of slang from like the 18th and 19th centuries and the number of words that they have for like the person who distracted someone while mm. somebody else robbed them and all of this sort of stuff there's a, a word which was treacle man which was like <laughs> um the best looking bloke in a gang would <laughs> would knock on the door of like a grand house and the housekeeper would answer it and be like oh hello oh, I'm the <laughs> and he, he would just like flirt with her for 20 minutes while the house was just robbed to I bits. Have to say that would be me if we started a gang <laughs> <laughs> you'd, have, you'd have to be one that gets like poked through the window at the back <laughs> I was gonna say being the smallest gang member I'd be the one getting <laughs> you'd be like pushed halfway down the up chimney the chimney yeah <laughs> um, so yeah there are all kinds of words for like the people who took part in these kinds of things so that method makes sense I'm yeah it, all of this is like leading me towards saying that it's true but I mm. don't know there's something just sticking in my head that says maybe you've made this whole thing up mm. the weird name that he's got Barrington Foot, mm. Barrington Onslow Foot. <laughs> That sounds like a name you could make up. But then again, I think if you had made it up, like there would be some further sting in the tail. Like when he got to Edinburgh, like something would have happened mm. or he would have turned out to like realise it and went back and like knocked them all out. <laughs> something. <laughs> be an artillery commander. Yeah, there'd be, I think if you were making it up, I think there would be some kind of even bigger end to the story. Mm. That's the only thing now that's pulled me back towards saying that it's true. So yeah, I'm going to... Uh, although I wouldn't be surprised if I get this wrong, I'm going to say that yes, that's true. Final answer? Yeah, it's a good story, so I kind of want it to be true. This is BS. <laughs> <laughs> I literally stole that idea from a video game. Oh, <laughs> hey. you pop culture. Yeah, what video game is it? Uh, Red Dead Redemption 2. I literally don't know what those words mean. Bitch, <laughs> just why I did it. <laughs> Uh, actually, he was an opera singer and he was in the army. Oh, wow. And he did tour the UK. So Onslow, Barrington Foot. Oh, so that character, he's that, a, he he's a genuine person. Yeah, oh, I, right, I just okay. slapped him in Glasgow and got him robbed oh, on the stage. Right, coach. okay. Ah, oh, that was a good story. I kind of wish that was true. But in a way, it kind of is if it's in that game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, no, I'm 1 0 down already. Oh, an excellent start. Oh, I knew. Right. My confidence going in is high and it's even higher now. <laughs> and of course, Hubris never gets the better of me on this podcast. Yeah, this is going to end 5-1 now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I need to pull a point back here. Mm-hmm. So, um, kind of in the sort of literature ballpark, which I know is my kind of area, but um, I'm going to follow your tack and do like, we're going down about three different avenues here <laughs> before we th- get to the... Oh, you can't use my tactics against me. <laughs> before we get to the actual fact. Okay, can you remember in 2009, there was uh, a story about a helium balloon that had been set adrift from a garden 
in, in Colorado. And the family that this who, who had let this balloon go claimed that their uh, six-year-old son was on board. And this sparked a huge oh, sort of uh, media scrum. Big bell, yeah. yeah, and it was on sort of a live thing on news in the States that this balloon was, I think it got up to like 7,000 feet in the air and it traveled... For about an hour and a half, about 50 miles, and the the National Guard was scrambled. And uh, eventually this balloon sort of crash-landed near Denver Airport. And, Mm. of course, the child uh, wasn't on board. Um, And then they thought that maybe the kid had fallen out. So they started a huge search of the land that it had flown over. And it turned out that the kid was just in the attic. (laughs) And it was all a hoax. Because you remember this story? I vaguely remember this. So this is kind of like the the balloon hoax thing. But this wasn't the first balloon hoax in history. And this is what I'm going to talk about. So in 1844, a headline appeared in the New York Sun newspaper, which said, Astounding news, Atlantic crust in three days. And this story was written by Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe, you know Edgar Allan Poe wrote... The uh, blackbirds, the crows... (laughs) <laughs> the raven. The raven. Yeah, he wrote a one. lovely story about blackbirds. <laughs> they're, so, they're so cute. Yeah, the raven. Um, Fall of the House of Usher. He wrote Telltale Heart. Horace. Did he do that monster from the oceans? What's that called? <laughs> uh, he's got all the tentacles on his face. The monster from the oceans. Yeah. Well, who are you talking about? Ah, uh, Cthulhu. Ah, oh, that's uh, Lovecraft. Ah. No, H.P. Lovecraft. Okay. Yeah. Same. Um, which is also what you call your car, isn't it? <laughs> The Cthulhu. <laughs> Cthulhu, yeah. Uh, no, um, yeah, that was uh, Lovecraft. And, um, yeah, he was born in Boston in 1809. Um, his name was originally just Edgar Poe, uh, but his parents died when he was a toddler, so he was adopted by the Allen family and so kind of became double-barreled. He wrote his first poems initially in 1827, so he's still really young when he published them, but then eventually kind of branched out into prose and journalism and then wrote all of his horror stories. Uh, he died very young. He died when he was 40. Really? Yeah, um, he was found wandering the streets oh, wearing somebody else's clothes. He was in a sort of odd, delirious state, and he just kept on muttering the name Reynolds. Really? Yeah, and he was taken to the hospital and died. Uh, Jeez, yeah, that's it was actually really, kind of creepy. It's very, very odd. Cause are I, there any theories on like what? Who there Reynolds are lots was? of theories about oh. this. Some people say that it wasn't actually Reynolds that he was saying. He was just sort of muttering about stuff. Mm. There is a theory that the, at the time cooping was a thing, which was like politics was kind of so rife with corruption that. Mm supporters would beat people up and say you've got to go and vote for this person otherwise we're going to come and get you so there's a theory that he was kind of beaten up and this Reynolds was maybe one of the candidates that was behind it but um, yeah there's all sorts of theories about what happened to him he was also an alcoholic Uh, so there's a theory that it it was just sort of delirium I was was going to say there's um, some similarities with your own behaviour on the weekends (laughs) (laughs) yeah but that's just my obsession with Burt Reynolds (laughs) 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 Um, yeah so very very odd another fact about him he married his cousin um, and when they got married she was 13 jeez yeah she died very young as well it's a kind of really tragic story she died in her 20s yeah thanks for bringing the like, fun, <laughs> yeah, fun facts Paul. oh hey <laughs> uh, so anyway um, Edgar Allan Poe was behind this story so this is kind of pre his horror stories but this is kind of post uh, his kind of early poetry and stuff so he was kind of already an established author um, so he wrote this story for the New York Sun 
and it's immensely detailed. It all talks about um, the the kind of gives the dimensions of the balloon that did it. Uh, he's, he's, the balloon was called Victoria, um, and it wasn't full of helium or anything. It was full of coal gas. It's fitted with propellers and vanes, and he drew a little diagram of what it looked like. He claimed that they were eight people on board. Amongst them, uh, the aeronaut Monk Mason. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Monk Mason. Is this true? Um, oh, th- this is the fact. Oh, the- <laughs> yeah, is, is whether or not whether or not this BS story ever Monk turned up. Mason. Um, someone called Sir Everard Bringhurst mm. was on board. Uh, two seamen from Woolwich who were helping out. Oh, oh just, just um, happened to be there. Yeah, another aeronaut called Robert Holland. And for some reason, he decided to say that the uh, Victorian author William Harrison Ainsworth, who wrote a really popular Victorian <laughs> book called Jack Shepard, uh, he said that he was on, on board. Uh, the story was that it set off from London and was only due to land in Paris, but uh, got caught in crosswinds. No one on board was kind of technically minded enough to get it back on course. So it was just sort of blown across the mm. Atlantic. Uh, crash landed in South Carolina. And it was the first ever crossing of the Atlantic by any kind of dirigible. And yeah, and it claimed it happened in 75 hours, which is ridiculously mm. quick. But what, like just over three days, mm. something like that. On board the airship, as well as all the people, there were uh, a number of barometers and telescopes, um, a fortnight of provisions, even though they were only going to Paris, <laughs> they were prepped for everything. Um, casks of water, carpet bags, uh, cloaks for cold weather, and there was a coffee warmer. Oh, um, well, so you've got to get the important stuff you know, out there. You know. Yeah, you want the barista on there with you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this story was uh, all written up in massive detail. Paul wrote all of this up, sold it to the New York Sun. They said, this is incredible. This is the first crossing of the Atlantic in history. Um, we have to get behind this. Front page news announced the, the headline. It, of course, kind of in 19th century America, it really strikes a chord. Um, so there's a huge queue outside of the um, the offices of the newspaper for people desperate to kind of pick up a copy of the paper once it was released. And then two days later, it was announced that it was a hoax that Poe had made the entire thing up. But The Sun, they were either kind of, the editors were in it all along and they just wanted to sell those newspapers, or they were massively embarrassed by the fact that they were taken in because all that they did was publish a retraction that said, we are inclined to believe that the entire intelligence is erroneous. <laughs> well, there you go. That, <laughs> so that's like, sort of out. Remember that thing we posted a couple of days ago? Yeah, we're inclined to believe that it was erroneous mm. and then that was it. So, yeah, this is the story, or is it, that so... Edgar Allan Poe came up with a balloon hoax long before the Colorado balloon hoax. My first instinct is to think you sitting in Starbucks this morning <laughs> happened to Google the Colorado boy balloon hoax. <laughs> <laughs> Which I do every morning. <laughs> And then just found this that was linked to it somehow. Right. So this yes or BS fact is... Did Edgar Allan Poe make up this hoax story and mm. sell it to the New York Sun? The thing is, if you've made it up, you've had to think of just some either some random Victorians to stick in there. Like, oh, that, <laughs> let's put that author in there. Mm-hmm. Let's put Ma- Master Monk or whatever he was called. <laughs> Monk Mason. Monk Mason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Monk Mason. Sounds like like a bad TV detective. <laughs> Sounds like a brilliant TV detective. Ah, <laughs> uh, something like there's a big gut feeling that says this is actually true, though. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of Edgar Allan Poe. You are. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, something is about this. It's it's very Victorian eccentricy. Mm-hmm. You you rely a lot on Victoria. Your Victorian eccentric <laughs> facts are like my Roman facts. They're like <laughs> the crutch that we that we keep leaning yeah. on. Yeah. And that we just can't seem to bear it to be taken away from yeah, us. Yeah, true. Yeah, I think I'm just going to go with this one and say this is true. Okay, you that think is... Edgar Allan Poe made up that story? Yes. That story? Mm-hmm. 
It's true. Aha! He did, yeah. This is one of the first sort of big stories that he saw was uh, complete rubbish. So what consequences did he suffer off the back of this? None. He was (laughs) Edgar Allan Poe. There is kind of some little sense to this in that uh, that Monk Mason Hmm. was actually quite a famous aeronaut. Uh, So yeah, he was, there was a guy called Thomas Monk Mason who was an aeronaut at the time. So he kind of half stole his name um, and that author was a real guy. Why he thought to put him on this airship, I don't know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but the actual first um, crossing of the Atlantic by a dirigible, I think, was in 1919. Mm -hmm. So it was a a long, long time. So um, I'm guessing that would be like a massive sort of Hindenburg-sized thing. It It wouldn't wouldn't have been just like a hot air balloon. No, and it's not going to be something that's just been blown off course (laughs) (laughs) on the way to Paris. (laughs) How fast does the wind go to get you there? Yeah, so no, that was completely true. Yeah, Paul Mm. made that story up and yeah, caused a little bit of a stir in 19th century New York. Well, two nil to me then, Oh, Jones. no. I'm hoping this is a whitewash today. I'm like, <laughs> my over-blind confidence here, I'm like on an ultra. Like I said, I, I never collapse before, or at least when I'm overconfident. Mm-hmm. Everything's going to be fine. So, two nil to me. I, you know, I've just not got, not got a good feel about this. I've got a wonderful feeling about this. <laughs> okay, this could genuinely end 6-0. But remember, if it does, you you have to buy me a drink. No, it, I, we've been through this. <laughs> the loser has to buy the drink. I, I'm going to listen back to whatever episode we made I that rule up. But anyway... Yeah, I can do with a pint. I was going to say, right, cut the podcast here. <laughs> Let's get a drink. Right. So, I know I've talked a lot about the ancient Romans... But... <laughs> that's that's the biggest understatement ever. <laughs> so I thought... Let's get another hour out of them. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> no, you give me a minute. Right. So I thought... <laughs> so I thought, maybe we should do some more. <laughs> no, what did you think? The Han Dynasty? <laughs> <laughs> no, you've thrown me off now. Oh, I, I apologise. I want to talk about another ancient empire, so pre-Roman. Oh, the Holy Roman Empire? <laughs> <laughs> They're not pre-Roman, you idiot. Yeah, no. Have you ever heard of the Achaemenid Empire? No. It's you probably heard them by their more common name as the Persian Empire. Oh, well, yes, I've heard of them. <laughs> no, use the obscure ancient Persian <laughs> local name. That'll be the one that everyone in the 21st century is known. Well, Achaemenid, actually, Achaemenid just means the empire in Persian. Oh, right, okay. Persian. Now, I don't know how much you know about the Persian Empire, like the original, because I know we've talked in the past about kind of the Parthians, the Sassanids, yeah. the kind of successor empires who came after them. But these were yeah. the, the original Coca-Cola version of the Persian Empire. Right. OK. I kind of know where it was on the map. Oh, do you know the extent of where they were? Oh, I'd, I'd imagine it's probably one of these ones that was absolutely massive. It was. So it's probably this... like from like India to Turkey or something. Even a little further than that, they stretched from modern-day Pakistan into the Balkans in Eastern Europe. Oh, wow. And almost down to Libya as well. So they had that Good grief. Whole... So like right across the, the Eastern Mediterranean. Then. Yeah. They, oh, wow. they kind of They kind of came out of nowhere in 550 BC. Mm. Um, Cyrus the Great, you might have heard of. Oh, yes. That's a name I know. Yeah. So he kind of led the Persians out of Iran and he conquered the Babylonians, the Assyrians. He just kind of went mental over the course of his... Wow kingship and he okay. kind of took swathes of territory and these are the Persians who are known as the big rivals of the Greek city-states mm-hmm. it was actually the Macedonians Alexander the Great who destroyed the Persians in the end oh right okay. so the, the empire only lasted a couple of hundred years from like 550 oh, to 330 really? BC so came out of nowhere conquered everything and then in turn conquered almost entirely by oh, Alexander right. the Great speaking of Alexander the Great though mm-hmm. did you know he had a couple of brothers no uh, Chris the quite good and Terence the okay, because um, 
Alexander the Great. Is this a joke? It was supposed to be. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, genuinely, I was like, oh, no, I didn't know you had brothers. And then you, when you were at Chris the Quite Good, it's like... See, because it's... Anyway, oh, do you want some actual facts about Alexander I, the Great? I want an espresso, I think, <laughs> after that. No, keep going. I'll promise I'll buy you a drink after yeah, this. Yeah, pass those matchsticks to put under my eyelids. <laughs> <laughs> some actual facts about Alexander the Great. Right. Do you know some of the things that he put in his will? No. Some interesting things on here. He wanted a giant monumental tomb the size of the Pyramid of Giza for his father, Philip. Uh-huh. Didn't mention about his own tomb in there, but um, wow! Why do we... okay? Yeah, that never got built then. do <laughs> absolutely nothing got done. Oh right, okay. Um, he also wanted his generals to go on and conquer the rest of Arabia and the entire Mediterranean basin. Wow, that went well. Exactly. He wanted them to also circumnavigate Africa, <laughs> and also he wanted them to transplant populations from Asia to Europe and Europe to Asia to create a large common unity area of friendship and intermarriage. Wow. All right. So I think it's... I leave it for everyone else to tidy up. (laughs) Wow. So basically, the generals took one look at that will and said, you know what we'd rather do? We'd rather fight each other for control of the various bits of the empire. And now he's gone. What's he going to do about (laughs) it? That's ridiculous. That's like me putting in my will, when I die, I want all the borders in the world removed. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What? What's wrong not with not the man? just remove the borders to go and forcibly then transplant people. Yeah, who, I want everyone who lives in Swaziland to be moved to who, Sri Lanka, who more than likely don't want to be transplanted uh, yeah, exactly. somewhere completely new. What was wrong with him? Well, he had an image of world domination mm. of one one peoples, one culture, one Macedonian intermarried empire. Okay. There was no volunteers for the circumnavigation of Africa either. I don't think anyone was jumping at that when he died. I'm not, yeah, I'm, you can't force people to do that after <laughs> you're dead. This feels like the generals would have discussed this like this. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> Who does he think he is? <laughs> yeah, right. He's dead now. Put, just put that in a drawer somewhere. Okay. But we're not here to talk about the man who destroyed the Persian Empire. We're mm. here to talk about the Persian Empire at its height. Right. And the Persian invasion of Egypt. Okay. Also one of the great kingdoms. <laughs> Great superpower. I'm, you're laughing. I'm jumping you, around you are again. All over the place with this. Because <laughs> I've got so many fun, interesting facts to talk right, about. Right, okay. So we've been through, um, you've heard of Cyrus the Great, some of the mm-hmm. other great kings, like, you know, Darius, uh, Xerxes. Oh, from uh, the 300. Yes. Although I don't think that's quite what he looked like in real no, life. No, I don't think he was sort of three foot taller than every other human. Yeah. And almost completely solid gold. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You never know. We're talking about Cambyses II. Okay. One of the lesser known Persian kings, but he was the one who conquered Egypt in the end. All right, okay. Now, there's actually quite an adventure we've got to go on first as to how <laughs> the Persians eventually invaded Egypt. <laughs> right, buckle up, everyone. Exactly, are you ready? So we're, we're starting off with the last pharaoh, Pharaoh Amasis II. Okay. He's in Egypt, he's having a good time. You mm-hmm. can see the Persians are absolutely laying waste to everything around them. Mm-hmm. And he realises they're right at the Egyptian border. So he's a bit, uh, he's getting a bit nervous. He's right. thinking, right, the Persians, I'm, I'm next on the list, I've got to get ready for this. Yeah. But he heard that Cambyses II, the king of Persia, was in need of an ophthalmologist. An ophthalmologist? Yes. An eye doctor? An eye doctor. Right. So he said, oh, right. (laughs) 
Is this true? This is true. Okay. This is actually true according to Herodotus, who was writing. Oh, right. Okay. He was writing about seventy years after the fact, and Herodotus was kind of he was. Yeah, he was sipping the wine on the yeah, side. Yeah, exactly. We'll we'll caveat this right. with Herodotus did write a lot of fact, but he also kind of gave a flourish yes. to things. Mm. So this is Herodotus's story okay. of right. how the invasion happened. <laughs> this isn't even the true or false bit. No, no, I'm this just, just I just want to see w- w- this what this ophthalmology thing is. So he gets his eye doctor. Right. This is Amasis II. He says, right, you're going to Persia to look after King Cambyses. And then if we keep him happy, he won't invade. Okay. But the eye doctor, he didn't want to go to Persia. Mm-hmm. And he didn't like the pharaoh very much. Oh, all right. So he starts whispering in Cambyses' ear, mm-hmm. King of Persia. He says, hey, you know what I heard? I heard pharaoh wants to marry his daughter to you to kind of create an alliance between oh, Egypt right. and Persia. Okay. Guaranteed he's 100% down with this. Send an emissary over to Memphis in Egypt. He'll love it. He'll say, oh, I can't wait for this marriage to happen. Right. So Cambyses sends his emissary over, mm-hmm. sends the offer to Pharaoh Amasis, but the Pharaoh doesn't want his daughter to be married to the king at all. Right. So he comes up with a cunning plan at this point. He decides to send another woman in place of his daughter. <laughs> but he Why is, aren't they just honest with each other? This is oh, it gets better. Honestly, the ancient world is just ridiculous. It gets better. Right. Paul, because he makes a mistake. He sends the A do- man. <laughs> Oh no, my plot is ruined. <laughs> he sends the daughter of the pharaoh he deposed. <laughs> right. So This is like a soap opera. It is. It, this, it gets even more crazy as we go along. <sighs> so the daughter of the pharaoh he opposed was called uh, Nitatus. So he sends Nitatus over to say, right, this is my daughter. Yes, right. you can marry her. As soon as she arrives in Persia, uh-huh. she says, I'm not the pharaoh's daughter. I actually... <laughs> I really hate him because he deposed my father and I've been living in virtual slavery. Right. At what point the pharaoh thought this plan would work? Yeah. It's it's a shame he's got rid of his eye doctor because he seems a trifle (laughs) (laughs) short-sighted. Badum tish. So this greatly angers Cambyses II. He starts planning his invasion force, getting Mm -hmm. ready, but he's not quite tipped over the edge yet because Egypt's still quite powerful. He's thinking, "Mm, I think I can take them down, but Mm -hmm. I just need a push. Mm-hmm. And this is where poor Pharaoh Amasis, his luck gets from bad to worse. Right. One of his council advisors really hated him. Right. Herodotus doesn't say why he hated him, but he... he <laughs> There's a lot of hate on this, on this guy. So his plan is he's going to flee to Persia, kind of give some military secrets over to the Persians. Right. Kind of help the Persians invade Egypt because he thinks he's, he's going to make big out of this. Okay. If the Persians can invade. So he escapes. The pharaoh sends one of his eunuchs after him mm-hmm. to try and capture him and bring him back. Right. He's found in southern Turkey, of all places. Wow, he's slightly overshot so the mark. I was going to say, he's nowhere near the capital of Susa, which well, is in How Iran. would you track someone down like that <laughs> at, at that time? Especially if a eunuch's just going around asking questions. <laughs> Have you seen this man? Is this story true? According this to Herodotus. Is... So this isn't even your fact? This isn't even my fact. Okay. I just thought this is a really good story to put right. in. So they find him. So the eunuch captures him. They get him under guard that night. Right, we'll get him back to Egypt. We might be safe. We right. might be able to pull this off. But this council member gets the eunuch drunk and he gets the guards drunk and he makes a break for it. Right. And he's, he's, he gets the right direction this time and he okay. makes it straight to Susa and he says to King Cambyses, Egypt's weak, invade now, there's nothing they can do to stop you. All right, okay. And that is what Herodotus says, tipped him over the edge and started right. the invasion. But his luck gets even worse now, Paul. Who, the pharaohs? Yeah. <laughs> so the invasion's right. on the way and the pharaoh dies. Oh, right, okay. He just dies. He just died. Right. About a few months before the so invasion. all of these machinations just come to nothing because he dies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the Persians then invade. And right. it's up to his son, Samtik III, 
is now being foisted with this responsibility to defend Egypt. Right. And this is where we finally get to my fact. Right, okay. I was wondering whether there was a fact on the horizon anytime soon. <laughs> but that was a fun little... That was a, a good fun, story, a yeah. A fun little interlude to build okay. up to it. Okay, So the Persians, they first hit a city called Pelusium. It's a well-fortified city on the coast. It doesn't exist anymore, actually. It's now been reclaimed by desert, but it used oh, to be right, okay. quite a wealthy trading port in northern Egypt. Mm-hmm. But basically, if the king of Persia takes this, he's got a clear route to Memphis and the rest of Egypt. Right. So... Sam Tick third, he thinks, you know what, I know how to defend against the Persians. Who hates the Persians? The Greeks. I'll get on the phone to them. <laughs> so, he get, so he gets a WhatsApp group started. <laughs> he's, got, he's got all the city-states in there. He's mm-hmm. like, the Persians are invading. Come help, lol. <laughs> shrug emoji. <laughs> yeah, shrug emoji. What am I going to do? You guys don't like the Persians. Come help us out a bit here. <laughs> Thebes replies, Ruffle. <laughs> So they're having a great group chat. <laughs> okay. But poor Samtik, he gets bad luck because some of the Greek city-states decide to actually side with Persia. Right. Because you've got to remember, the Greek city-states weren't all one united yeah. speak as one. Some right. of them do come and help the pharaoh, but some of them, like Cyprus, they join the Persians. Right. And beaten up on the pharaoh. So he's like, Cyprus has left the chat. <laughs> <laughs> blocked. <laughs> blocked. <laughs> he's blocked the pharaoh. He's trying to call him, but he's not answering. But this is the fact now. Okay. From here. So all of that is true. All of this is this true. This is the sort of current state of affairs. Current state of affairs. He's on, he's on the ropes. now on his, on his... Yes. On his own. This is yes or BS from this point on. Right. In order to... Because it's quite a fortified city the Persian king decides to use some psychological warfare against the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. Now, he knows they see cats as a very sacred animal. Mm-hmm. So what he does, he starts catapulting cats over the wall of Pelusium. Right. In hopes that they would surrender in horror, or at the very least, be so enraged that they would sally forth and king could then meet them on the field rather than trying to attack the city. Oh, right. Okay. And this actually works. They, they just, he fires cats for live a, cats, live cats for a full day and night. So they're, well, how they're... many cats has he got for a full day and night? <laughs> they probably had to run out of the city because there was no room anymore. <laughs> so, this, so Pelusium is full of cats now, right? And this works. It enrages the Egyptians so much they're so offended. Some people start sallying forth just by themselves, and then others follow. And like, right. right it's more like a mob coming towards like right. the well-organized Persians at this point. Okay. Persians absolutely destroy them, take the city, move on to Memphis. War's over. Persia now ruins Egypt. Okay. And that is the fact. Did the Persians use psychological warfare and catapult cats <laughs> into Pelusium to demoralize or provoke the Egyptians? <sighs> wow. Okay. That was epic. An adventure. Yeah. That was. Are we over the two-hour mark already? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. You know, the thing is, I'm kind of puzzled by this because my only point of reference for what the sort of Egyptian reaction to cats would be Mm. is, you know, in The Mummy, (laughs) (laughs) where Brendan Fraser holds a cat up Mm. to Imhotep and he kind of whirls off as like a sandstorm. (laughs) Did did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know whether they were like horrified or whether Mm. they were sort of so... They thought cats were sort of so revered that they kind of couldn't go anywhere near them. Like they weren't sort of worthy to be anywhere near them. So I don't know. I I don't know what the reaction would have been. So I could kind of genuinely, I can kind of see this being true. Catapulting cats. Mm. I mean, it's the ancient world. They didn't really care about (laughs) what they did with anything. So, yeah. 
how many like where did he get the cats from though like was he did he just have lots of cats I don't know maybe he collected them on the way or were they like know. wild were they like it doesn't say where the cats have come from he just had lots of cats mm. okay if you've made this up I think you've found a really really good story and told it very brilliantly and then right at the last minute tagged this on and mm. just thought what's the most ridiculous thing that I can think to end this story but something's telling me this might be true okay catapulting life <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, this is going to be like that time that I said someone rode into battle on a donkey. That's That was a lot more absurd. Yeah, you you dressed this up so well that I ended mm. up voting for something completely stupid. Mm. Catapulting live cats over the walls of a key Egyptian city and then conquering the empire from there. Mm. It, <laughs> it makes no sense, but it kind of <laughs> does make sense. Are you ready for an answer, though, Paul? I'm coming down, despite my best inclinations, I'm mm-hmm. coming down saying that this is true. I think maybe they did do this. Is this your final answer? Oh, dear me. Uh, I... They catapulted cats. You know, it's, this has gone on so long, I just I kind of <laughs> don't really care anymore. I'm just going to say it's true. I, yeah, I think this is true. This is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. There wow. was one source written like 700 years later that said the Persians maybe lined up cats in front of the walls. Oh, right. But it's it's not verified by any other sources. Oh, right. They also... But they didn't while, catapult them they over, didn't the catapult walls, no. over the walls. They didn't catapult them over the walls. Is there not a genuine story from history that at some point somebody like catapulted plague-ridden yeah, bodies? Yeah, I think that was Genghis Khan. Oh, that. was it? Yeah, he did that to, to Chinese cities, I think. Right, to kind of like infiltrate them with disease. Yeah. I wouldn't quote me entirely on that one, but I no. think it was. But that's something we need to come back to that at yeah, some point. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, yeah, there was a kind of little precedent for mm. it in my head. Life cuts <laughs> was a little bit of a stretch in retrospect, but there were some other theory, uh, wild theories that the Persians might have nailed cats to their shields to intimidate them, or oh, God. they might have painted cats on the shields. That but... sounds more likely. Yeah, that's probably the most likely. <laughs> but no, catapulting cats, complete BS. <sighs> That's a good story, though. That yeah, that's I kind of don't wish that was true, but I kind of do at the same time. (laughs) Well, three nil. Three nil. I think this is going to be six though. On the way. (laughs) I need to pull some points back here, otherwise it's going to be an absolute whitewash. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is a place called Wimbledon. Is that your fact? Yeah. <laughs> True. 4-0 to me, right? Oh, no, it's 4-0 already. Cue the music. Um, no, there's a Wimbledon in the UK, obviously, but there's mm-hmm. also a Wimbledon in New Zealand. Hmm. And it's named after Wimbledon in the UK. But it isn't named after Wimbledon in the UK because of the tennis competition. Okay. It's named after Wimbledon in the UK because of the rifle shooting competition <laughs> that used to be held at Wimbledon. Okay. Okay. So, uh, before we get onto that, some facts about Wimbledon, the, the competition. Uh, it's set up in 1877. I didn't realize it was as old as that. And the grass. Actually, well, isn't tennis like a, a Tudor thing as well? Or... Oh, yeah. Well, I, just I mean, really real tennis. Ah. Like, I don't mean like, like genuine tennis. I mean, like the actual sport <laughs> of the real tennis. tennis. That you play in your mind. <laughs> um, that's ancient. That's mm. like Henry VIII used to play that, mm. I think. That's the one that's got the sort of sl- slanted walls. Yeah. That you kind of batted against. To be honest, that looks more interesting than regular tennis. I love it? tennis. Um, um, Sorry, yeah. Wimbledon facts, you say. So Wimbledon, yes. Um, the grass across the entire place is cut to precisely eight millimetres. Mm-hmm. They're that kind of precise about it. And in a standard tournament, uh, how many tennis balls do you think they go through? Ooh, it's got to be 
something obscene like 47,000 or something. <laughs> you know what? That's not a bad guess. Really? Yeah, 54,000 no. tennis balls, yeah, in one full Wimbledon tournament. Jeez. Yeah, they changed them, I think it's every seven games initially and then every nine after that. Do they something. really need to do that? I don't know. But I, th- I think they don't just bin them. I think people get to take them home and oh, stuff. Oh, like and... give them to the dog or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, when you go, go to a pet shop and they buy those balls on the end of string, it's just an, <laughs> an old has, Wimbledon tennis ball. He has 53,000 tennis balls, finally. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but the competition was set up, as I say, in the, like the 1870s. Mm-hmm. Um, but a decade before that, in 1866, a competition called the Wimbledon Cup was set up at what is now Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a rifle shooting competition. Mm-hmm. And the Wimbledon Cup was a sort of tankard. You know, the Wimbledon competition now, you get, I think you get a big plate. Yeah, you don't get to take that home. You get a, like a tiny replica of it. Oh, that stays oh, at Wimbledon. So you hold it up for all the photos and then you put it away and you get your little version of oh. it to take home. Well. Um, yeah. But uh, no, the, the Wimbledon Cup was like this solid silver tankard that was made by a very famous um, London silversmith. Um, and this was offered up for this, for this um, competition. And lots of shooters took part and this competition sort of established itself um, but then by that point the sort of tennis competition had established itself after a few years and that started to become much bigger and much more popular because tennis is more of a I guess more of a spectator sport than shooting maybe <laughs> um, so in 1875 an American team turned up to take part in this Wimbledon Cup competition and uh, they won and so the prize was given out by Princess Louise who was one of Queen Victoria's daughters, I think it was like a third or fourth daughter, handed this cup over to the American team. They took it back to America. So now there isn't really a prize to give out. So what ended up happening was, as a sort of show of good faith, is that this rifle shooting competition then started to be held in America. So Wimbledon became a tennis competition in Britain and the Wimbledon Cup, the the rifle shooting competition, moved to the States. Mm. Uh, It was originally held in New York. I think it's now held in uh, Ohio. It's now held at a shooting range. Is this all true up to this point? Yeah. But this brings us to the crux is that now you've got a tennis competition which has replaced a rifle shooting competition so everyone goes oh this Wimbledon in New Zealand what's the connection to the tennis competition and the reason why Wimbledon New Zealand is named Wimbledon uh, is because when the town was being founded a local farmer shot a bullock Mm -hmm. from a distance of a thousand yards which is uh, the final competition for the shooting event. Is a, shooting is, a bullock from is, a thousand no, yards. No, shooting a target from a thousand yards is how you win this Wimbledon Cup. And he shot this bullock from so far away, people went, you should enter this is, into the Wimbledon competition. This, this shooting is as good as you'd see at Wimbledon. Okay. And so the town became known as Wimbledon <laughs> because of this ludicrous shooting of a farm animal what? and not because of any connection to a very prestigious tennis competition. So what was the town called before? They called the, it the town is literally, it started out as a farmstead, basically. Mm. So it's either going to be the farmer who owns it or someone who works on his farm shot a bullock from <laughs> almost a mile away. He, why did he shoot the bullock? I Surely don't know. if he's a farmer, he wants to keep <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, maybe it escaped. Maybe it attacked someone, I don't know. But he shot it from around about a thousand yards away, brought the bullock down. Everyone was so amazed by this that they said that it's akin to something that you would see at Wimbledon. They absolutely so didn't the, mean... So these the... onlookers just happened to be <laughs> at this farmstead. Yeah, they, um, they associated it with the, uh, the rifle competition. And so now the other Wimbledon on the other side of the world has absolutely nothing to do with tennis. Okay, I'm starting to think there's there's certainly some bull in this story, <laughs> but, it, but it ain't in Wimbledon. 
<laughs> oh, this... It's a pretty straightforward fact, uh, considering we've just sat through a 45-minute lecture for you. <laughs> no, it's this... I'm going to start my own history podcast. <laughs> there is a town in New Zealand called Wimbledon. Is it called Wimbledon? Because the person who founded the town shot a bullock from a oh, mile away. This has got to be BS. <laughs> I think you've literally just discovered the fact that Wimbledon used to have a shooting contest. <laughs> yeah, you... all of that's completely true, yeah. And then you've balled it on... This, this far ludicrous so, actually, story. so what year was Wimbledon, New Zealand founded? Oh, I don't know that. It, it's going to be around about the time of the the. Does, is there actually a Wimbledon in New Zealand? Is that, is oh that yeah, true? that oh, town, so a town completely exists. Okay. The question is whether it actually doesn't have anything to do with the tennis competition, and it comes from the rifle competition. I think it's just, it's just how unimaginative colonial folk were. You know what? <laughs> Let's just call this town. A town I already know. Yeah, yeah. It's like the North American colours. It's like, right, we've come from Plymouth. <laughs> what should we call this place? Let's call it New Plymouth. <laughs> right. I've, uh, my gut is just saying that this is BS. <laughs> so it was just a farmstead. Yeah, it's the people who founded the town. Farmer, it was originally just a farm. Again, community. I'm trying to get my head around why there were just some random people who shooting were just, a bullock. <laughs> shooting a bullock, or even there to witness it. Was it like if he's just a farmstead, then it would surely just be him and his family? Yeah, well, yeah, maybe it was just one of his family. And did farmsteads ever develop into towns? I don't know. Is that a thing? If or? it's just sort of established in the rural community, mm. people are going to need to work on it, which means there's going to be houses are going to be built no, up I near that's it. That's true. Like so, ranch yeah. hands and the like. Mm. But uh, no, I just. Yeah, something's just really off about this. Uh, I'm just going to say this is BS. You don't like my bullock shooting story? No, no. <laughs> It's absolute BS. It's absolute bullocks. <laughs> yeah, no. no. Okay, is this your final answer? It is. That story mm-hmm. is completely true. No, really? <laughs> yeah. Wimbledon, New Zealand has nothing to do with tennis. It's named uh, after a bullock that got shot. I still don't believe it. <laughs> I need more citations. <laughs> it's on like the local government website for New Zealand. It lists this story. It's one of these sort of very kind of local folklorish kind mm. of stories. Yeah. So no one has named the the name of the person who shot it. The, the, all the questions that you were asking, like why was the bullock shot? Mm. Who happened to pass comment on no it? No one's bothered to answer those yeah, questions. Yeah, th- those aren't answered. But this is the story of the naming of the town. And it, yeah, it goes back to the rifle shooting competition that used to be held at Wimbledon. Oh, well, there's another town on the list for a Yes or BS live episode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd love to go to New Zealand. Well done, Paul. You've pulled a point back. Yeah. So it's was it three one? Three one. Okay. Uh, Maybe I can haul you to a draw. But I'm going to try and test a bit of your geography now. Mm-hmm. It, it's the geography is not the main part of the fact. I'm good with my capital cities. It's it's more um, land masses and names <laughs> of things. All right. Okay. Anyway, I'm jumping ahead of myself here. Right. We're going back for a bit of context. We're going to the town of Clypeda in Lithuania. <laughs> So it's right. un- If you're going to quiz me on my knowledge of Clypeda in Lithuania, we're not going to get very far. <laughs> well, then I was there. those were my next questions. <laughs> Do you know that kind of that Russian enclave that's in Europe? There's oh, Kalingrad. Russian- yeah, yeah. Um, and it's kind of on the coast of Kalingrad. There's a, a sandbank that runs for about ninety kilometers north. Right. It runs all the way up the coast of Lithuania. Do you know what those are called? Take your A-level geography. What the, that? That sort of peninsula. That's oh. made of, that's made like a sandbank peninsula. No, uh, I, I'm trying to. Fix in my head where it's between Poland, yes, and the the sort of little Baltic states, or yes. Estonia, so Latvia, Lithuania at the bottom. Yeah, basically, 
yeah. But that's where we are today. Okay. And no, I, I don't know what that's. Is, is it quite famous? It is. It's called. It's called a spit. That. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I know what the geographical oh, feature. Is. I don't even know what's the name <laughs> in Lithuania. Oh, it's called the Curodian Lagoon. Oh no, I've never heard of that. So no. basically, yeah, I know what a all... spit is. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, I didn't know what it was when I was researching it. So basically, this is we're in this. It's almost like a little mini landlocked lagoon, but there's a tiny right. little space at the top. Yeah. So it's still it's still technically the Baltic Sea. Right. So it's not completely closed off. Not completely closed right. off. Okay. And it's it, we're we've, ooh, we're getting excited again. Oh, we're, on, no. we're we're at a, a spooky shipwreck. Oh right. Okay. <laughs> it's at the bottom of the Curodian Lagoon. Okay. Right. <laughs> You and your funny little mystery stories. That is the, <laughs> right, okay. So we're in the coast of Lithuania. Yes. In this tidal just, lagoon. Yes, just off the coast of the town of Klaipeda, which right. is in Lithuania. Okay. Modern day Lithuania today. Right. But to give some context of why the shipwreck's there, mm-hmm. it's been dated to about the 1300s. Oh, wow. Um, where it gets interesting, because this was the time of the Teutonic Crusades against the Lithuanians. Right. Basically, in the 1300s, the Lithuanians were still pagan. Uh, they followed the Romuva religion. Oh, wow. This is all true. Romulan. <laughs> Romulan religion. They just loved Star Trek so much. Oh, is that our Star Trek, is it? Yeah, no. Romulan. <laughs> I just I know wow. that. That's just a word that I know. <laughs> so the Romuva religion. Right. It's an old um, pagan polytheistic uh, pantheon of gods and also kind of nature worship as well. Oh, right. There is some speculation that it might be related to Hinduism. Oh, wow. So again, this is this is interesting. It's not been proven, but this right. is just interesting. The Lithuanian has a word called dana, which mm-hmm. means harmony and coherence which is similar to Hindu Dharma yeah, kind of harmony. So they think there could be connections. So somehow, somewhere in the ancient past, this polytheistic religion has Found made it to way. Eastern Europe. Good grief. That's interesting. So there was a crusade going on against the pagans at this point. Mm-hmm. It lasted about 200 years. It took forever. Wow, that went well then. I was going to say, <laughs> I was like, whoops. <laughs> it became such a long war that... It became known as the campaigning season, and knights from other countries would just come along. Oh, what are you doing this summer? Oh, I'm I'm going to the Crusades this year in the Holy Land. No, no, the um, the Romuvan <laughs> wow. Crusades. And, yeah, and like English, French, uh, Holy Roman Empire. Just what, like mercenaries? Yeah, mercenaries just... would just turn up and help the Teutonic Knights. What? It was absolutely brutal, this war. The thing That's is... insane. It's one of the reasons it lasted so long, because this, the level of brutality was at such that there was virtually no prisoners taken. Oh, wow. And in the Romuvan religion, they would have live sacrifices as well. So one of, oh, the, wow. one of the things they did to some of the knights once they'd caught them was strap them to the horse and then set fire to the knight and the horse as a what? kind of execution. What? But the Teutonic knights and the crusaders were as brutal, and they would have like a scorched earth policy on villages. Good grief. Yeah, that's it's just insane. insane. When finally the Lithuanian king converted to Christianity in the um, late 1300s, early 1400s, I think. Good grief. But it's it's where people think where this shipwrecks come from, basically. It's around about this time. It is around about right. this time. Okay. And it looks like it's been a sacrifice of um, soldiers. Wow. Or some kind of Western knights have been right. sacrificed here. Now, this is where it gets all spooky and kind of mysterious. Okay. Because when they found it in the 1960s, they, they found it because um, they noticed a lot of driftwood was kind of floating to the surface. Mm-hmm. So people started to investigate, where's all this driftwood coming from? Has there been a shipwreck somewhere? So they got some divers out. Mm-hmm. And this is where they found this sunken ship. It's only about 25 meters deep. So uh, it was relatively easy to find. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where it gets a bit um, morbid and spooky. So mm-hmm. like, uh, buckle up if you have a sensitive disposition. Oh, dear. Right. So they were about... <laughs> I think all the sensitive people switched off when you mentioned a burning horse. 
but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's true facts. This is this is where it's yes or BS. Right. So is this shipwreck actually true? So there were about 50 men laid down in this boat. They'd been nailed onto, onto the boat. So they're lying down. They had their feet, uh, hands and chests nailed. So they, they think they might have been nailed down there alive. Oh, hey. Because there was no iron bolts in any vital organ areas. But they'd nailed them down. And each one had mice bones in their mouths. Oh, my God. Right. Now, this is, <laughs> this is where there's a reason... A speculated reason for this, mm-hmm. anyway. So... I think I know where you're going with this mice thing. It's, really? This is going to be disgusting. What? <laughs> where, where do you think <laughs> I'm going This is going to be horrible. The historians speculate that this was a sacrifice to the Romulan goddess of death, who was called Gilatine. Oh, okay. And one of the interesting things about her, her sacred bird was the owl. So they believe the mice were kind of put into the mouths of the prisoners as an offering to the uh, Gilatine's pet owl. Right. They don't know if they, the mice were dead when they put them in there and then the mouths may have been sewn shut mm-hmm. to keep them in there. And then they scuttled the boat, laid it heavy with rocks mm-hmm. and sunk it. And this is when it was discovered. So right. that is the fact. Did this sacrifice happen and were they discovered in the 60s? Right. This is grim. Mm. Um I've never heard of anything to do with this. I've never heard mm. of this in Lithuania. Lithuania, I know at one point, I think was the biggest country in Europe. It was. I think that it, later on, there was kind of like a Lithuanian-Polish Right, so is this, is this... This is before, before then, that. right, okay. But they were still quite a large country. Right, so a, a larger than it kind of is today. Exactly. Yeah. So when you think, oh, it took you 200 years to conquer a tad Lithuania, yeah. it was a lot bigger Yeah. Okay. back in the day. Yeah, but I've never heard of any of this sort of bizarre religion. Hmm. This huge human sacrifices and things it's a horrible story but it is an interesting story mm. when you mentioned the ma- m- mice bones i thought it was going to be one of these things of like you put the live mouse in and then you mm. keep the mouth shut and the, the mouse just they tries to claw its way out kind of thing. and see they think that the mice were probably killed yeah with but again that's just there. speculation yeah. they don't know if they don't know if the, the men were killed first and then sunk. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because there are very brutal things in history about... Mm. Like that thing where you get sort of... If a prisoner gets put between two canoes and then the canoes get filled with bugs and honey or something. Ooh. Something like that. Like scaphism, I think that's called. Ooh. It's like... Um, on, again, the mummy, where they put that um, guy in the... Oh, yeah. The with coffin the, or the yeah, scarab beetles. The scarab beetles, yeah. That's my one historical reference point. <laughs> <laughs> Did it happen in the moment? Then it, it can't possibly be true. Uh, so yeah, the things were minging in mm. history. Mm. Um, I've never heard of any of this in Europe, though. So this is interesting. I kind mm. of like, like, like I say, it's a disgusting story, but I, it's very interesting. So I kind of want it to be true in that sense. If this is BS, uh, you've made this horrendous story up. <laughs> Mm. And I kind of want to pay you the compliment of not having these awful thoughts in your head. What should I do with these people? I'll have them nailed to the bottom of a boat alive and then I'll sink the boat. So um, I hope that you haven't come up with that. Yeah, I'm going to say this is true. But having said that, your first two facts were both BS and you have done this before where you come up with three BS facts Mm. in a row. Have you done that again? No, I don't. I'm going to say this is true. I'm going to say that this, this is true, yeah. Final answer? Yes. BS. Oh, what goes on in your brain? <laughs> I am here to play the game and win. <laughs> Thing is, I knew you wouldn't think I would come up with something that horrible. That's horrendous. It is. Are yeah. you in the middle of like writing Saw 10? <laughs> <laughs> Thing is, I wanted to do a fact about that 
kind of crusade against the Lithuanians. I've literally never heard of that before, no. But yeah. No, I've never heard of anything to do with that. Brutal so was, was there, is there any precedent to this kind of torture? Or have you literally just made all of this up? Oh, no, it's when I was researching it and the kind of punishments that they would mete out on each other. Right. I thought I like that, that horse burning thing. That's yeah. true. So but I then thought, you concocted the. Then I, I thought horse. that that's got my got, that got me thinking. <laughs> what I, goes on in your brain, <laughs> honestly? So what did it do? Like a spooky shipwreck thing? Yeah, and, and, this... and contextualize it with the the most horrendous torture imaginable. <laughs> they had mice in their mouths. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Did I get the point? But you, <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> then it's four yeah. one. I gladly lose that one, quite frankly. <laughs> Okay, that was a horrible fight. I just want to caveat that with that's if you do any sort of research on kind of historical punishments, that's doesn't even scratch the surface. Yeah, that. true. Th- things get brutal. I think the further mm. back you go, yeah. I sort of defend my own d- dark mind. <laughs> <laughs> Bit late for that. <laughs> so anyway, what's your final fact? Uh, right. Well, actually, I know it's not um, exactly my kind of field of expertise, but I'm going to stay with history. Okay. And actually, we're going to stay with the Crusades. Ooh. Uh, Richard the First. Mm-hmm. Richard Lionheart, who was involved in the Crusades in the 12th century. Do you know who his queen was? I don't, actually. Um, this is one of these ones where if, if you kind of have read up on royal history, you'll never, ever be able to answer that question, but you might recognise the name. Mm-hmm. It's Berengaria of Navarre mm-hmm. was his, oh, was his consort. And she's quite famous because she's apparently the only queen of England that never set foot in England. Um, you know, there's always this thing of like, I don't think Richard spent very much Eat time in... Six months or something. Yeah, <laughs> in between crusades. <laughs> it wasn't in England very much. And his wife is sort of in the history books as she, she never came to England. Okay. But apparently she did. And she came to a fancy dress ball at Winchester Castle dressed as a cockerel. Right. This is the third one of these. (laughs) Okay. So please, please do go on. So some background to this, as we always do with these kinds of things. Berengaria of Navarre. Navarre's in northeast Spain. Uh, She was born sometime around 1165 to 1170, so kind of late 1160s. She had never, ever met Richard when they got married. (laughs) Quite common, actually. um, The marriage was arranged by Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was Richard I's mother. And Aquitaine borders Navarre, so Mm -hmm. is southwest France. It's where Bordeaux is. It was part of England. Yeah, it it would have been English territory, yeah. So Navarre's just across the border, just across the Pyrenees. Mm -hmm. So um, it was arranged that Berengaria would marry Richard and this would be a sort of a cement and alliance between Aquitaine and Navarre. Um, But Richard at the time is in the Crusades. Mm -hmm. So Berengaria, along with um, Eleanor and a couple of the other people, get on a boat, sail across the Mediterranean, basically heading to the Crusades themselves. <laughs> because that, where's the safest place <laughs> exactly. to be? Where should we have a wedding? <laughs> Let's have it at the Crusades. We know Jerusalem's lovely this time of year. Um, luckily, perhaps, they ran aground on Cyprus. So they kind of didn't actually land up in the Holy Land and have to get married in the middle of that. So they land on Cyprus. Richard came and met them and they were married at Limassol. They kind of hung around the Eastern Mediterranean for a little while. Which is quite nice this time of year. <laughs> <laughs> yes. really? Yeah, they hung around the Holy Land for a little while, but... Uh, Richard went back to the Crusades. Berengaria came back to France, uh, as she was now sort of Queen of England. 
Um, so they kind of got married and then kind of didn't spend any time together. Do you know anything about what happened to Richard on the way back from the Crusades? I know he decided to sack just about every French castle that he could find. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was after he'd been um, kept prisoner, though. He came back from the Crusades to England for mm-hmm. a time. And in that time, he was, came back from the Crusades, didn't pick up his wife in France. So he comes back <laughs> to England. This causes such an outcry that the Pope tells him to go and get his wife. <laughs> yeah. Is this true? This is all true. Oh, yeah. Um, the Pope Celestine III mm. sort of said, hang on, you've got a wife in France. You know, you're technically married, mate. Like, go and do your kingly duties. So, yeah, this is kind of the one time that they met up really was it was in France. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the way back from the Crusades, he'd been captured by the Holy Roman Emperor. He was held prisoner by the Holy Roman Emperor. So, yeah, eventually they met up. But Richard died very shortly after. He died in 1199. Because he was shot. Shot. By a, supposedly a chef. <laughs> yeah, I've heard it was a little boy. There's a few different stories yeah. like who shot, but basically he was taunting the French mm-hmm. on the castle walls. And you can't kill me. Yeah. And then someone just shot him with a crossbow. Yeah. In the neck. So unfortunately, Berengaria spent a lot of time basically on her own, despite mm. being the queen. And King John, who replaced mm. uh, Richard, because obviously they didn't have any kids. You don't spend time with your wife. You don't get any kids. <laughs> just yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> Uh, so uh, John Lackland, as he was known, um, John Lackland, Lackland, yeah. Why Lackland? I didn't because I've never he heard ended up losing all of the French oh. territories. Yeah, oh. um, well, and... I've seen um, the Disney Robin Hood, so I, we know. <laughs> That's your, your context for that. My, my context is the Mummy. Yours is Disney's Robin Hood. Um, yeah, he he came in and he was, to all intents and purposes, not the nicest person in the world. Mm. Um, and withheld Berengaria's payments that she should have got as the former Queen of England. He withheld all of that money. And she wrote letters to him saying, hang on a minute, you know, I'm the Queen of England or the former Queen of England. You need to give me some money. And so there is a theory that during this kind of period of correspondence, she came to England to see John to try and sort this out. But even if that is true, she was no longer queen. So she didn't set foot in England while she was actually kind of technically on the throne. Ah, there's your little get out clause then. All of this is true. Oh, oh, perfect. All of this is true. Mm. Um, So yeah, there is a kind of little caveat that says, yes, she didn't come to England while she was queen. She might have come to England after she was queen to meet up with King John to kind of resolve this issue. Eventually, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was still knocking around by this point, she's gone through another king, was on a new one. Yeah, she eventually kind of forced King John to pay up and, and it was settled and she got her pension or whatever it was. But by this point, Berengaria was living in uh, Le Mans in France and she never came to England. Except... Oh, who? Okay. Uh, a few years ago in... 20 this? Yes, this okay. is the SBS. A few years ago in 2015, a wardrobe record was unearthed in Le Mans and listed on it... Is, is we don't know very, very much about kind of medieval kings and queens anyway. Queens especially, because it kind of tends to get sidelined a little bit. So there's very, very little we know about Berengaria. There's very little we know about Elna Rakuten, to be mm. honest. Um, but so that when when this document turned up, it was sort of kind of like a holy grail. You know, we've kind of got some information about her. So it was found in the records in Le Mans in France mm. and listed on it alongside all of these gowns and all this sort of stuff and rolls of silk and all kind of usual stuff that turns up on royal wardrobe lists was something listed as Le Manteau de Jeune Coq. <laughs> now, a, ma- a manteau <laughs> is a cloak mm-hmm. um, and a Jeune Coq is a Cockerel. Um, people, some people say that all of this meant was that it might just have been a cloak that had like a cockerel-shaped design sewn into it because, you know, cockerel is seen as an image of France and all mm-hmm. the rest of it. But around about this time, this was in 1193 that this cloak was ordered. At that time, Henry was in prison in what's now Germany. Berengaria is in France ordering this lovely cloak. Um, 
But at the same time, Joan of England, who was Berengaria's sister-in-law, so one of mm-hmm. Eleanor Rakuten's children, she held a fancy dress party at Winchester Castle. We don't know why the party was held, but there is a theory that it might have been held for uh, Eleanor's 70th birthday. She was born sometime in the 1120s. We kind of don't really know when. So there's an idea that it might have been for her birthday. There's an idea it might have been to celebrate victory in the Crusades. But she held this ball, this kind of fancy dress banquet at Winchester Castle. So we think maybe, as her sister-in-law, Berengaria was invited to this. And so she commissioned this kind of flamboyant cloak mm-hmm. as maybe part of her costume to come to this party what we don't know is whether she turned up mm-hmm. so she may never have gone because presumably news turned up that richard had been captured on the way back and while it, richard kind of basically bankrupted england to pay mm-hmm. <laughs> to pay his ransom money berengaria stayed in france and raised money there and in spain so it might be that she never came to england and just stayed in france and tried to save up money so maybe she didn't go but it's a very kind of tantalizing hint that says, actually, probably she did go to this party. This was the costume that she'd ordered. She did turn up as the sister-in-law and then returned to France to save up money for Richard's ransom. Um, so there's still kind of quite a lot of little question marks hanging about this. But the kind of prevailing theory is that uh, thanks to this wardrobe record and this knowledge of this fancy dress party that happened at Winchester, perhaps this unusual manteau, this cloak that's listed was her costume for this fancy dress ball and she did actually come to England. Right. There's a lot to piece together here. I'm going to try and go through step by step. It's a long, old story. Basically, King Richard, he's in prison. Yeah. Do you know why he was in prison? I don't know that one. He was, um, I think, on the way back from the Crusades because it was a sort of collaborative effort to kind Mm. of reclaim the Holy Land. On the way back, with with the job kind of done, quote unquote, all of the sort of reasons for them to kind of collaborate all fell apart. So Mm. they kind of threw Richard under the bus a little bit. And he was uh, delivered to the Holy Roman Emperor, yeah, and, and put in prison. Oh, sorry. It's interesting side. I didn't yeah. know that <laughs> Yeah. So, Richard's in prison. Yeah, in Germany. His wife yeah. is in Le Mans. In Le Mans, in France, Mans. yeah. And she's ordered a cockerel costume. Well, th- this is the thing. It's just listed so as... So, do- she's ordered a cloak to cock or whatever it was. Yeah, Le Manteau de Jeune Coq. So which a, is a, a basically a cockerel cloak. Cockerel cloak. And we don't quite know why. So she's ordered it. There's some speculation around it. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, her sister-in-law is in England. Joan of England, yeah. Joan of England. Who eventually, eventually became Queen of Sicily. So she mm. was sort of married into that. You say Joan of England was born in the 1120s. No, Eleanor of Aquitaine was born ah, in, in the so 11th. She's just, she'll be about 70. Yeah, really Eleanor of Aquitaine, um, I wrote this down because I was so fascinated by mm. it. She died in 1204, which for a, for a medieval she woman, was like 80s, especially maybe. she was 80-ish Jeez. when she dies, yeah. Right. So this is the thing, we kind of don't know when she was born, but it kind of would coincide with maybe her 70th birthday around about then. So Joan of England is putting yes. on a party. Yeah. She's invited Berengaria to come along. Mm-hmm. She's may have commissioned this cockerel cloak mm-hmm. and she may have gone to Winchester mm-hmm. and did, and set foot in England as queen. Did that party actually, is that real? Did that take this place? This is all part, all of, part the of the yeah. fact. Yeah, so all, all of the early stuff is completely true and all of these characters exist. The question mm-hmm. is whether this... And no one wrote anything about the party. No, no. Sure. We know that the party took place and it's kind of, a, it would line up with it being a celebration for the Crusades. It would perhaps line up for being... Eleanor's 70th birthday, so it might have been something like that. Mm. Um, but we don't kind of have the records to show why it happened. Now you've done this to me before <laughs> when you said Tolkien went to a party dressed as a polar bear, <laughs> yes. along with C.S. Lewis. Yeah. And that was true. <laughs> but was the wife 
of Richard I dressed as a cockerel. You know, it's just just because of this wardrobe list. Yeah, I really want this to be a five-one victory. <laughs> so have we had a five? Oh yeah, we have. We yeah, have. we don't yeah. talk about that one though. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think there's it's a vague enough that you've not given enough away that I can't pin you down on. This is a definite lie. Where was this? Was it the castle where these these records were found that said I've ordered oh, a cockerel costume? That I don't know. It's just the it was yeah, just that, listed. Where as, were they hidden? I don't know. I don't know. It just it just says that it was found in Le Mans. And the reason why it's sort of they say this one weird thing and go, oh, she must have attended this fancy dress party, is because the rest of the records are just very basic things. Right. I think you've plucked some characters from history, <laughs> and you've because this, you've left it. Woolly enough that I, <laughs> I can't... don't think it was made of wool. <laughs> <laughs> that I can't pin it down to say if it's a definite true or definite lie. Mm-hmm. So I think this is BS. You've crafted this on the back of Tolkien dressed as a polar bear. <laughs> and that is my final answer. I say this is BS. Okay. You think that that never happened? That did not happen. And the only queen to set foot in England never set foot in England. Yes. Violator? Yes. That story mm-hmm. is BS. <laughs> I knew it. Yeah. it was just too, too wispy. There wasn't enough to like latch onto in the, that story. The more I was writing it, I was like, I really want this to be true. Yeah. <laughs> but no, um, there is a basis for this. And I wasn't thinking of the talking fact. Mm. Um, but Edward III is recorded to have gone to a banquet dressed as a, a pheasant. Fish. Oh, I thought it was a fish. <laughs> fish. <laughs> dressed as a pheasant. Uh, so yeah, there is a precedent to this. Mm. Um but no, unfortunately, Berengaria of Navarre actually never did set foot in England and she certainly didn't turn up to a fancy dress party dressed as a cockerel. Mm. She saw through it. 5-1. 5-1. We haven't had one them for a while. Ooh. I've finally, finally taken revenge after the Christmas special. I kind of wish I'd thrown that last point just so that I could get a pint out of you. <laughs> <laughs> no, well done. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So All what, of yours were BS. They were, but there was a lot of truth behind them though. yeah there were some good stories along the like way the nice story about the Achaemenid Empire uh, Alexander the Great's will which was not followed at all mm-hmm. the yeah. fact about the crusades against the the Lithuanian Romulans yeah and, and, that, and that pharaoh and his run of terrible luck <laughs> yeah it's just a nightmare yeah um, yeah what else did we find out today oh yeah Edgar Allan Poe came up with the balloon hoax mm, exactly um, a long time before balloon boy that seems decades ago that we were talking about <laughs> no, my story um, was so long yeah and what was the other one Oh, yeah, Wimbledon in New Zealand was named after a a bullock shooting and not a tennis competition. We had some quaint stories and we saw got an insight into the dark part of my psyche as well. (laughs) Yeah, what more could you want? (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much for listening, everyone. Uh, Head on over to the Patreon where we've got some bonus content for you. And we will see you next week for the final episode of Season 3.